Hello and welcome to A Mighty Practice, a podcast about how to identify and overcome your creative roadblocks. I'm your host, artist and coach, Christine Garvey. In each episode, I'll share challenges I've encountered in my own creative practice over the last 15 years and techniques I've developed to work through them. If you're feeling blocked, frustrated, or overwhelmed in your creative work and you don't know where to go, you are not alone, my friends, and you're in the right place. Hello, artists. Happy Friday. Here we are. This is our third episode on making art and making money. I'm having so much fun doing this. This has been like such a treat. Um, thinking through these ideas and having these conversations with artists about making money and making their work. Whoa, complicated stuff. Um, it's been such a treat. And today is a really special episode because I wanted to... I'm all about really like offering examples of how to think about things. So I thought that, you know, our first two episodes, we talked a little bit about core negative beliefs and money. We talk about um, thinking about your financial life and your creative life. And I thought it would be best to bring somebody in to hear how they think about these problems and questions. And so I brought today um, Katie Schulman who is an amazing fibers artist who is based in Detroit, Michigan, and is somebody I've known for more than 10 years, and I think has grappled with these questions of how do you make your art in a long-term sustainable way. She's done so many interesting, thoughtful things to build her creative life up and make it what she wants it to be. And so she's going to share with us so much today. She's going to talk about her thoughts on uh, working a nine-to-five, on whether selling your work makes you a real artist or not, all her thoughts on selling your work, um, how to think about where you live and how where you live might affect the way that you make work, the value of not work, living in an expensive city and how that has allowed her to do the things that she's wanting to do, um, going to school for work or not going to school for creative work, doing deep dives into into your work, creating time for it. So um, lots and lots of things in this conversation today. A little bit of background about Katie. Katie is based in Detroit, Michigan. She's originally from Washington, D.C. She holds an MFA in studio art from Syracuse University and a BFA in fine art from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, Her work has been shown widely in New York State, including at the Everson Museum in Syracuse, New York, and the Stroll Art Gallery in Chautauqua, New York. And in addition to her practice, Katie has over nine years of experience as an art administrator. So she's worked with various institutions of higher learning and nonprofit art spaces in New York, like the 92nd Street Y and Hunter College. She also teaches at College of Creative Studies and serves as a pre-college counselor at her alma mater, the Penny W. Stamps School of Art and Design, which is a part of the University of Michigan. So she has really amazing experience and I so enjoy this conversation with Katie. A couple of things that I want to let you know about that might be great resources for you before I dive into this combo. One is that Katie is going to be teaching at the school uh, next week, if you're listening to this in real time, so May 19th, Thursday evening, uh, 2022, if you're listening to this later, uh, she's teaching a class about rope making. It's called All About Rope, Transform- Transforming Line to Form, which is 
super, super cool. So this is a great workshop if you want to be somebody who is try, trying to think three-dimensionally. So Katie's going to give you some skills in that department and offer you feedback and offer you examples. And then the other cool thing, so that's for members of our school who get to just sign up for that for free as a member. Um, the other cool thing is that if you sign up for that workshop, if you join our school, join the workshop, you get to sign up for a a 30-minute coaching call with Katie after the class where she will give you feedback on your work. And let me tell you, I have had Katie in the studio and she has given me feedback on uh, my work and damn, she is on fire. She's got so much to say, so thoughtful, so many ideas. So I would totally snag a session with her if you can. There are going to be limited spots. Okay, that's my cell. That's all I got to say on that uh, subject. But enjoy this amazing conversation with Katie Schulman and I hope we see you in her class next week. Thanks y'all. Take care. Hey Katie. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you. Okay so um little backstory on Katie Schulman who I'm talking mm -hmm. to today. Um known Katie for a very long time mm -hmm. more than 10 years. More than 10 easily. years. Easily. Oh easily more than 10 easily. years. Yeah, yeah. And she was somebody that I thought of that I wanted to talk to about this topic of making art and making money, because I think that this is something that she thinks about beautifully, you deal with so beautifully in your life. I think, like I was saying to you before we started recording, I think you're somebody that, um, you know, you're very good at seeing your creative life as something that you want to nurture and seeing it as something separate from paying your bills and all the things that you need in your financial life to thrive and do well. So I just wanted to have a conversation about what that has looked like for you over your, you know, I don't know, what do you want to say, like 15 plus years of making work? Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah. 15, 15. No, I know. It's just like, what is time anymore? <laughs> what is time? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like what that's looked for, like for you in your practice, some questions, you know, things that have come up for you in terms of like struggles and anything else that you want to share about how you think about these, these two questions. I mean, even starting from school. So you did a BFA. I did. I did. Um, I went to the University, University of Michigan's uh, art school now called Penny Stamps. Um, oh, graduated. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> talk about a creative person who has money. When you have money, they name schools after you. So, oh, man. Um, which is not something I'll be talking about today. <laughs> really after me. Um, and then, you know, it's very interesting, the idea of making art and making money. I definitely didn't have the language, the language I have now, you know, 15, 16 years later, but my move after school to New York City, I'm from the East Coast originally, and I was really ready to get back closer to home, New York City had occupied a very special, large place in my imagination and heart. Um, yeah. But I moved with the sort of internal understanding that art making was over for me because I could not square the circle of applying my degree in an expensive city. Like it's so bad now. It was so bad even, you know, in 2010 when I moved out there. So interestingly, this idea of balancing my creative life and my um, working life, I actually, I stopped that conversation like May mm. 1st, 2010. I said, I'm moving to New York. 
I cannot understand how I will remotely make my work and live. Um, so that's how I actually got to arts administration because I thought, okay, I know making my own work is off limits because I won't be able to pay my rent, etc. So I'll position myself as someone who helps other people make their work. Whoa, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. That's such yeah. so beautifully articulated. Okay, so you did your, your you went to school mm -hmm. and you learned your skills around mm -hmm. being an artist, right? And talking about mm -hmm. work and making work. And in theory, you have these examples of professors that should have been kind of illuminating that there are many paths forward in being an artist and like mm -hmm. ways that you can make a living and make your work. And the conclusion you came to was like, I just can't do both. Like I can't make art and I can't make money. And Cannot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so no, it, it was not. Yeah, it's so funny, right? And now that I I have been a working person. I have gone to graduate school. Um, I mean, I. this is a little sidebar here. I think the institution is the worst place to look for examples yeah. of how to be an artist. Um, and I couldn't write because what I saw was, and I had, I loved Michigan. I mean, I'm working there now. I'm back um, on staff. It's not only did I learn skills, it was sort of the first educational experience I had in my life where everything came together. I went to a really normative high school, very academic um, art program wasn't particularly strong and I didn't think of myself as a smarter, interesting person. Michigan like changed me into this person yeah. who, who had this passion, who understood how to use art making and sort of my visual my visual way of thinking and approaching the world to like gain these skills and gain all this experience. So to your point, Christine, it's actually like even more ludicrous that at the end of my four years as the most confident version of myself, yeah, uh, that I'm like, well, uh, actually that thing that I've been doing for four years, that's given me all this confidence. Like I have to kiss it goodbye. Cause I really didn't, I knew I wanted to move to New York city. I was, you know, 22, bright eye, bushy tail. <laughs> Like, like let's New York is the answer. <laughs> I mean, right? Like the things we think when we're in our early 20s. And, you know, I lived there for almost a decade. Like it captured my imagination and kept me there. Um, but I went in not really having a good blueprint from professors. And, and so where my understanding went was like, oh, well, that was a school thing, mm -hmm. uh, making work. Uh, that's not going to be a life thing. And the kicker, right, because, you know, I'm here now, I have a practice that I'm so dedicated to. I worked as an administrative, um, an arts administrator in different um, art centers all over New York. And I was working with, you know, teaching artists. And as soon as they learned I had a BFA, they'd say, well, what, what's happening in your studio? What are you up to? Yeah. And I'd keep having these conversations of these artists just saying, well, you have a BFA. Why aren't we having a conversation about your work? Yeah. And then, you know, I wonder, I know it's true for you and I'm assuming it's true for all of your listeners. Um, if you're a maker, it nags, it's nagging oh, yeah. sensation. So, right. I move with this idea of like, okay, that's, um, that was a thing of the past, but the, the combination of being in situations where I was thinking about art, even administratively, getting the encouragement from working artists in New York, and then the nag that I had, I just couldn't actually stay away from making mm -hmm. work. It was in my blood and bones. I, I couldn't not do it, but 
is still, it was so separate from my work life. Um, yeah. And what do you think, like, just going back to that moment where you're like, okay, I, I need to, I can't, this is a complicated problem. Mm -hmm. Like this problem of, I, I want to make art. And maybe you didn't even claim the word artist. Like I think a lot of people, myself included, and people who listen to this podcast, like really struggle with like words like artist or mm -hmm. a studio practice or, you know, all of these things around what it means to be serious about something and, and have a commitment to something. So you obviously had this commitment that you had developed and then you couldn't, like you said, square it with this idea, like I have this commitment, but I also have to pay my bills. And so it sounds like you kind of set that part of yourself aside for a little bit. And like, what happened when you set that part of yourself aside? Like, what were the consequences that you experienced of like not letting your artist self come out and like quieting it yeah. for a little bit? What, a, what an amazing question. And I think, you know, immediately where I went with in, when you asked me that, you know, when you're an artist, my conception of uh, connecting those things is that actually it would be um, the art itself mm -hmm. uh, that should be making the money. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, where I'm at now and hopefully where we'll get there is I have such an expanded concept of like who I am as an artist and how I make that money. I consider every time I teach an arm of my studio practice. Yes. I make, and, and, you know, I just, I cut off that sort of creative thinking by separating those things out so um specifically in the beginning of that process right like i didn't have these creative concepts of like oh i could teach a workshop about my practice and that could be an arm of my practice that makes me money shut mm -hmm. it it was all shut down because my understanding of those two things being true and coming together is is the work had to function in a very specific way so I would say by separating those out, what I did was I really, I, I cut off any um, avenues of creative problem solving, of thinking about being an artist yeah. expansively, of recognizing those like moments where my working life and my creative life could come together, kiss, and, and I could make some money doing a thing that I really, yeah. really love. So, I mean, I cut off my nose to spite my face for a long time. Um, so first it was, can't make them both make sense. Second iteration was, okay, work has to be really small and consumable. Mm -hmm. I should like con concentrate on the Etsy market, which wasn't satisfying. Like that's not actually where the work wanted to go, what I wanted to think about. Um, and then eventually, you know, I went back to grad school. I'm now a person in the world. Um, and I'm thinking about selling work. And you were a person way. in the world before you went to grad school. Yeah, I took um, about eight years off of between my undergrad and grad. And I, I don't like to proselytize about much, but I will take a moment here and say, I think the greatest gift you can give yourself before going to get another degree or even your first degree is like take a beat because, yeah. you know, what the eight years showed me, it didn't give me answers about exactly how I wanted my work to function in the world or how I was going to make a living off of it. But what the eight years did show me is that like I had a fever and the only mm. solution was to continue making and to go into a grad program, knowing that about yourself, well, sky's the limit because you don't, you can bet on yourself. Talk about value. Uh, yeah. That's been of the most value for me because yeah that's been the constant, the needing to make versus 
how do I pay my bills with this work? Like mm-hmm. I have cultivated an existence where they, I don't separate. need one for the other. Yeah. yeah exactly. I think that's beautiful. And I think what you're pointing to there, Katie, that's really important is like, sometimes these things take a long time to figure out and it's figuring out what is persistent in your life that like you, that keeps nagging you, you know, Mm -hmm. that like you need to make your work. It's a part of who you are. It's a way you stay healthy. It's a way you stay connected to yourself, you know, and letting that be and what you want from that work. Like the discovery in the case of what you're saying is that, you know, making the shift from in school or post-school, you were saying my work needs to be a product and mm-hmm. I need to fit it into a market versus mm-hmm. uh, I make the work and uh, this is how it exists and lives. And, and it is already a product of something, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Versus like trying to, to make a product. Mm-hmm. So I think like the, that those discoveries are really important. And then it's like through time and through persistence, like you figure out what your values are, which is like so much of what I'm trying to help artists do in this podcast. And like in the school is find different ways to figure out what is essential for you in order to survive as an artist. And I think that you named some of those things out. Um, Keeping your financial life, you know, and your creative life as separate, like things that sounds like have touch points, like teaching, mm-hmm. which is like, mm-hmm. you make some money teaching. Mm-hmm. And it also is the, I, you know, pieces of it like fold into your making practice really well, but generally like you have had kind of different, um, a lot of like separation between those two worlds. Do you want to talk about like some of the different, um, I want to say like equations that you've had over the years of like, here's how I'm making my money. Here's what's happening in my practice. Here's how I'm making it work for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think too, I just, I think that's why I love the way you started this podcast series. Uh, Your first episode about money was about the self in relation to money, because I think the narrative that's forced on us is like, there's this art market and the art market is going to essentially shine on us and tell us how to behave. But the art market can't tell you what you need to feel comfortable the art market can't tell you what you need to get up the next day and get into your studio because, okay, uh, here's something about me. If I feel too stressed, if I am worried about money, about engagements, about whatever, I can't wade through it to have a clear mind in the studio. Yeah, Like I need to feel balanced and safe uh, before yeah. I can sort of jump off. So what has that meant for me is that I have needed to ensure that my financial life is both stable and reliable so that I can pivot and go into the studio and go crazy. But right, that has to do with me. It doesn't actually have to do with the art market, right? If I gave it up to the art market and was like, yeah, I feel totally comfortable living paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth. That's a completely different thing. Uh, yeah. But and some people so- do. You know, I do know artists that really are, I can think of one person in particular who's a musician that they do feel way more comfortable functioning that way. And it does not affect their ability to show up in their work. And I think what you're talking about is like, if you're going to take risks in your work, you need to feel like you're Mm -hmm. taking fewer risks in like this other part of your life that needs to be stable and reliable. Yep. So, so then to get back to your original question, so the equation that I have really always had is um I make my money uh from like a nine to five from a job um from a paycheck that I can rely on every two weeks um and 
preferably in a situation where I am still thinking about art. So for me, I have, I feel a lot of satisfaction when I am in conversation with another artist about their work. So, um, you know, a couple of my jobs, as I said at the top of our conversation, were housed in a different community centers all around New York, where I was working with teaching artists. And um, those day-to-day touch points with creative people, looking at work, helping people think through the classes they wanted to take. Um, Because you were working on the education side, you were doing education administration. Yes, exactly, in an arts context. So I was still in it like my brain and my body and my heart was very much in this community that makes me feel alive and vital. Uh, even though, you know, from nine to five every day, the work I was doing was truly at the service of others to make their own work. I did get some fulfillment, but there, you know, I knew I could pay my rent. And, and what I would do actually is I would use my vacation time for residencies. So that's sort of yes. when my relationship with Penland uh, School of Crafts down in outside of Asheville and Haystack Mountain School of Crafts, which is in Deer Isle, Maine, that's when those relationships really started to develop for me. And actually those became the breeding grounds for the work that I submitted to get my uh, MFA. So the equation I made was, okay, I have a paycheck every two weeks. I sh- sure I have a nine to five, Within the nine to five, every day I'm honing my like language around art making, around connecting with people over making art, which to me is like essential in my practice and who I am. Um, So I was still sort of gaining competencies outside of my studio, but then using the allowances of a full-time job to directly like pay back my studio practice. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's something that I admire about you I think you're really good at is that you are always you're always taking classes you're always like feeding yourself and again in that I see another value and the value is like you want to be in dialogue right you don't just want to be taking those vacation days and be in the studio and just working by yourself like you want to be around people you want to be like expanding you want the community element so it's I think what's really great there is like you're seeing in your financial life, I need X, Y, and Z. In my creative life, I need X, Y, and Z. How can these two things support each other? Which is sort of like what I was touching upon in the second episode is like, where are these two things working Mm -hmm. together in a way that you can have the creative life that you want, you know? So tell me, I mean, the conversation of like grad school and the Mm -hmm. value of grad school. I mean, we've had some conversations about it. Um, Mm Where I know that, you know, I have very strong opinions about uh, grad school in general. Do we need it? What, do, what can we get out of it? Like, is it really the best professional route? So maybe we'll hold on some of those conversations. But in general, like when you decided to go dedicate more time to your work, what pushed you where you were like, I'm ready to spend a little bit more time doing this and put work aside for a bit? Like, why did you make that choice to take yeah, that no, that's such, a, that's such a good question. Yeah, the, the grad school conversation could be like, I don't know, on a hundred part series. I <laughs> do have like so many thoughts and feelings and I'm back right in academia now. I'm a staff member at University of Michigan, but I still am. I'm in it. I'm back yeah. in it. Essentially, I, I think if, you know, I'm going to be really honest, it's like that, that nagging, that pull, that mm-hmm. like, 
explore this image, figure this out, turn this over, got louder and louder and sort of more um, pertinent. Like the Mm -hmm. Pope was just constantly there. I was finding that like most of my afternoons were spent at the School of Visual Arts Prints shop. Like I would just, you know, more of my time outside of my working hours became dedicated to my studio work. So I started to pay attention to how I was allotting my time. That's one thing. But I wanted to start working in three dimensions. Like, Mm -hmm. just like the poke being like, make this, think about this. There was a poke of like, but what if this work started to have a different relationship with space? And that question just started to to burn really. And, And grad school for me became this opportunity to shake things up. Well, a couple of things. Um, I knew I needed to leave New York City to take the work to the next level, which has everything to do with finances, everything to do with you know everything we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, New York about. is not a cheap place to. No, no, it's not. It wasn't a cheap place. And just as I was sort of dying to move into 3D, like I knew I wouldn't be able to do that if I uh, had to do it at a kitchen table. I had to do it while thinking about a rent that kept sort of creeping up and up when it, yeah. you know, my wage was stagnated. Right. Um, you, you made a lot of really smart financial decisions in order to support that. Do you want to talk about like? Sure. No, so <laughs> Why, is- I'd like to jump in here and say, not what? only did I graduate, but I graduated in 2020. Oh so my God. Yes. I, Good it was, point. Uh, and it was confusing and scary and all of the sort of confidence that I'd built over two and a half years, all of like the love and care and time I'd put into my studio practice, all of the gains I'd made. Listen, I like started working three-dimensionally. I, it was a huge, hugely important time for me. So important. But pre-COVID, my plan after grad school was to um, residency hop. Right. I felt really confident with what I was making. I thought, you know, grad school showed me, you give me a studio, you give me time, uh, I'll give you work. Like I can do it. Uh, there's a lot, I want to work. I love to make, I, my practice is based on thinking through making. So I need, it's iterative. I need to make to think, and I need to think to make. Um, and I felt really good about that. So I was like, listen, this world is big. I'm gonna, I was really interested in this residency in Houston at the craft contemporary museum. It's like, that's my goal. That's my six month goal. Uh, COVID hit and I was like, oh oh God, oh God. Um, And so these decisions you're talking about, um, like COVID shifted my desire of how I wanted to be in the world. And instead of being a person who would be flexible and move around and almost like, you know, we're talking about that artist, that musician friend you have that like feels so comfortable living hand to mouth, lives so comfortable, sort of not knowing the next thing that's going to happen. I actually felt really ready to live that lifestyle. And then COVID came as this wake up call of like, oh, actually I want stability. I want to feel grounded. Um, you know, it wasn't lost on me. Like I had health insurance because I was a student. Um, but like you take that away. I don't know. What if I got COVID and I had no health insurance? Like I really actually started to have really practical thoughts and decisions. And, um, the big pivot I made was I picked up and I moved to the Midwest. I live, um, in Detroit, Michigan now, 
my goal was to work towards a lifestyle that I could sort of more specifically control the dials of making and working. And to me, the idea of buying property, it sort of cracked open these ideas, these visions of being able to control how much, you know, having that control of a mortgage. Well, in 10 years, maybe having that housing stability would let me sort of work a little bit less and make a little bit more. Maybe I'd have a little bit more flexibility. And again, when you move to the Midwest and a place like Detroit, the cost of the house I bought, I did it. I bought myself a house. It was the most empowering thing I've literally ever done. You know, Christine, we're millennials. Like none of this shit's supposed to happen for us. None of it. We are in late stage capitalism. Okay. Soapbox. I'm off of it. Which is, which is amazing. And I think what I'm hearing there, and you know, it's like, not everyone's going to have the ability to do that, but what I hear, and I think that you are so smart about it, you know, and like going and so practical and being like, okay, again, this, like this question of like, what does my financial life need? Mm -hmm. And what does my creative life need? And what's so interesting is like, before there was COVID, your and your creative life was like really a lot more central as in like, I'm ready to make, I'm ready to have a little bit more instability and not have the security of the paycheck because I'm ready to like have, you know, go and make work and travel and do all those things that are, are creative values for me. And then COVID happened and all of a sudden like your financial needs came more to the forefront and you're like, okay, actually I do need that healthcare. And mm -hmm. my interest and in risk in this area is much smaller. And I do want a place to stay and I do want to experience some stability, right? Because the world felt chaotic. So what I'm sort of like pointing to there that I'm hearing in your story is how there's this push pull of like these two parts of your life and some, and you know, they come forward and go back in different ways. And it's about like listening to them. And I kind of love where you landed, where it's like, where there's this marriage of, you know, you want to make work, you want to have more time for it, you want to control your studio space, which is another thing that's so fucking hard for artists with how expensive everything is, yep. is like having a place to work that you can count on. I mean, I did the same thing, you know, I bought like a tiny house and then I built a studio in the backyard so that I knew that I wouldn't have to move and I could trust that this was going to be here. So I think that, you know, you made these decisions that were both very practical and financial, but also with like your creative life in mind of what was going to help you thrive, you know? Totally. And I also just really appreciated you sort of backing up and being like, yeah, this isn't uh, an avenue that everyone and anyone can take. I think that's really important. And I, there's a lot of privilege in, you know, being able to do what I do, totally what I did. Um, I moved to the Midwest so I could afford property, which means I am much farther away from family right now much. The beauty of this place, like shout out to Detroit, shout out to Michigan. Um, people are so nice here. Like I have felt so held and warmed and welcomed. Yeah. I have this lovely community. My partner and I are like both really feeling held and supported in our work and in our life. But yeah, like this all this decision to sort of feel empowered by this house took me away from a lot of things too that I know uh, make people feel very centered and grounded. So like, mm -hmm. yeah, I got a house out of the, this decision, but I also am way farther away from, you know, I'm one of four. I have a lot of siblings. I very close to my parents. They're on the East coast, all yeah. of them. So you make like compromises for sure. Truly. Yeah. And I know Christine, like you 
did to, like right none of your family lives in texas like no, we're, they're everywhere but here <laughs> right exactly <laughs> so it's like so i think within that equation too right like after grad school now i'm in my 30s now i'm really recognizing and putting like i have a confidence in a language after my second art degree that i did yeah. right if we go back to the story i told after my bfa where i was like well that was fun that's it no possibilities mm-hmm. I think a lot of that had to do with confidence. I think a lot of that had to do with like, still, even after four years at a great art college, not really understanding like the identity of artist, thinking it was one thing instead of like what I think of it now as being anything you want it to be. Yeah, um, let's talk about that. Wait, I have two questions for you and yeah, I want because yeah, yeah. I want to build on that. I think that's yeah, a yeah. really nice point. Yeah. Um, my first question is to kind of go back to this the first episode that we talked about making art and making money. Mm-hmm. And if you were to look back on your early 18 year old, 19 year old, 20 year old self, or that post just post BFA self, mm-hmm. what was a core negative belief that you had about making art and making money that you no longer have, that you have worked through in your life as an artist? That it has to be all or nothing that like all of your money has to come from your work or none of it does for you to be able to call yourself an artist. I think that's what set me up. I was like, oh, well, if I was going to move to New York and be an artist, that's what my life would have to be. And I couldn't make it make sense. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. that means I would have to have the money for rent, for a studio, for supplies. Like I had, it was such a black and white perspective of like the identity of artists and what that meant which like I now, oh my God, it's like, I'm so allergic to that idea. I'm so actually allergic to the idea that to call yourself an artist, you have to make a cent from your work. I think it is because, right. What we've been talking about is this, the drumbeat, the internal drumbeat that has like prodded me along on this path of my work that has had nothing to do with money, nothing. So to link being an artist in any way towards making money, I think is um, a true waste of time. To link being an artist, as in what makes you an artist is you have to make your money off of your work. Yes, I you think- have totally maybe, gotten rid of that yes. core negative belief. Yes, it's over, it's done. I mean, I'm working t- for me right now, right? The idea of making money off of my work means that potentially- I can start moving to a place, right? Where like I work less for someone else and work more for me, but it has to do with the work. It doesn't have to do with the money. And what I I just think this idea that to call yourself an artist, to believe that you were an artist and to link it to making any sort of money, I just don't think being an artist has anything to do with money. But here's something else you don't really talk about. Full-time artists, don't actually have that much time to make work. They're yeah. also their, they're their marketing department. They are their uh, business manager. They're Grant application their... department. <laughs> yeah. Truly, truly. So actually, yeah. and I think that's also something to think about. Once you sort of move towards your whole existence in life, uh, coming from your work, well, there's a lot of other baggage that comes with that in yeah. a sense. Uh, it, it, doesn't necessarily mean bigger and better it you know there are other things that sort of percolate and bubble up that now become your responsibility but I think I guess you know this now I'm so exercised about this um 
I think also because you know I like had this whole Instagram tirade about the stupid New York Magazine uh, quote yeah, right. fest about like how to be an artist the right oh, way. I know. Fuck off. I just I just think um, <laughs> I I'm I'm not interested in that conversation, yeah. and I'm not interested in people with really big megaphones who make a lot of money from their work. Uh, trying to link money to making work. I just, it's mm. not interesting to or me because I- what validates I the work oh, is that money, the amount of money that you are able to earn from your work validates whether the work is good, whether you are a real artist, whether, you know, you should keep doing what you're doing, like all of that kind of getting intertwined with the art making, I think is complicated and totally unhelpful for most artists. Yeah. I think so too. And then if you think about it, like, we live in a different world, like yeah. selling a painting. Okay. Maybe in 1975, selling a painting for $500. Well, guess what? You could like pay a month of rent living on the Lower East Side for that. Yeah. You sell a piece of, how much would you have to be selling your paintings for now to, you know what Me I mean? Personally? Like that, uh, uh, this, that was more of a, like, I mean, I'm, I'm going to tell you, sell. like, I could not for right. how expensive it is to have a child and, right. uh, like, yeah, I'd have to sell a lot of paintings. <laughs> You'd have to sell a lot of paintings for a lot of money. And right, like, let's right, be right, honest, right. this market is very saturated, which is, I think, amazing thing. Like, to me, what that says is like, lots of people love making art. Like, yeah. what a beautiful thing. To me, artists are the best people in the world. How lucky are we to be in a world where there are a lot of artists? But the reality is, there's not a market where you, you, not Christine, you, not Katie, you, any of you, um, could reliably be pushing out work that would allow you to cover all of your bills. Like mm -hmm. the rent's too damn high. So what would be, okay. I want two questions. One yeah. is what would be your advice to your 20 year old self? Mm -hmm. And then what is something that you know, to be true now, that's like essential for you? that you're going to take with you. So like, if you were to talk to 20 year old Katie mm. and you know, this core negative belief that you mentioned about, you know, that like you, you have to be, to be an artist, you have to make hundred percent of your living from making work. Like, what would your advice be on this very practical matter? Cause that's what we're talking about. Is like this idea of like money being a block from you listening to your creative intuition, money as a block from you living the creative life that you want to live. Like, what would you tell 20 year old Katie that you would do differently? Oh man. Or trust more. 22 year old Katie got out of college where she had done well in school for the first time in her life. You know, I graduated with great grades literally for the first time in my life and was met by, well, 2010 job market, you know, dealing with the throes of recession. I couldn't understand how I'd gotten such good grades and done so well and I couldn't get a job. I felt really sad and confused and unemployable, you know, and I think I took so much of my disappointments personally, mm. whereas they're really situational, like they have nothing to do with you, Katie, they have to do with right. where you, Katie, are standing in the world and what's mm. happening in the world around you. And then the other thing, you know, I think I would have said is like, double down on the thing that makes you feel centered, which is learning. Like, I think if I had like found a Penland sooner than my mid twenties, that voice in my head that was constantly like, are you doing the right thing? 
is this really how real life feels? I think if I could have been centered in a thing that always makes me feel productive, which is learning and making and focusing on sort of the day-to-dayness of just like learning a new task, Mm -hmm. I think that would have been like a really nice distraction from the noise of life. Um, So I think I would And you were in a very noisy place. I mean, maybe that's a piece of this thing for for whoever is listening like wherever you're at like are you in a place that's very noisy and New York City is a very noisy place noisy being like a lot of things are pulling you in different directions it's very expensive it's very hard to hear yourself and so if you're struggling with that like can you how can you get quieter almost Katie one more question before we go I can keep talking to you all day but (laughs) one more question so if somebody is listening to this yeah right And they are really struggling with this question of, I want to make work, right? Mm -hmm. And I just really don't know how to make art and pay my bills, kind of like where you were at, you know, 22. Like, what would be some advice that you would give them on how to think about these parts of their life? Decouple, decouple that, separate it take your little scissors, cut it in half, because here is really what I've found. If you decouple the art making from money, then the art gets to grow. That's like that decoupling is like an automatic watering. Like you think about your studio practice as a little baby seed and like essentially making money off of your work is like some tainted soil. Take away the soil and then let that seed thrive. Because let me tell you something, if you are thrilled by your work, things will come. Full stop. Full stop. Because yeah. right, the point is you'll be in conversation with more people. You'll want the work to be like seen in different circumstances. You'll be in this confident sort of open and inviting place. Uh, focus on the work. Just focus on the work. Because that's what it's all about. And again, this is a marathon. It's a marathon. This is not a sprint. We're not Usain Bolt here. If you are engaged and wish to have a lifelong relationship with this thing that is your studio practice, um, then it has to be about that. And it has to be, you have to be in it for the long game. Yeah. And setting yourself up to do something, to pay your bills in a way that supports that. Yep. You know, like if you want, like, I'll give you an example for myself, just, you know, to build on what Katie is saying is like, I knew that I could not, my whole plan was to be in academia and to teach and mm-hmm. to have that be what supported me so that I could make my work. And I knew that that was just in 2019, that that was just not going to be the way I was going to do it, the way that I was going to thrive, right? like the way that right. my work was going to grow. For a number of reasons, mainly being that academia, both financially and creatively, did not want me to thrive. Right. You know? So I think it's like just like not apologizing about what works for you. Right. And making decisions around what works for you, what you want to be central to your life, and not thinking that those choices make you any less of an artist or any more of an artist, right? You know? Right. And this identity is so specific. Like, I think, you know, okay, I come from a family of like a lot of lawyers. Well, we know what that life looks like. You go to school for three, you apply, you take the LSATs, hopefully you pass, you know, you get on the moving walkway, you go to law school, 
we know what happens. Um, I think being an artist is fundamentally uh, nonlinear. So I think it's scary to not be able to look around your life and be like, aha, I'm gonna do it like this person. Aha, I'm gonna do it. Like we don't necessarily always have focal point or that person to sort of point your attention to as a path to follow, which I think makes the process of figuring this out really terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to do a lot of work personally around doubt, around uncertainty, but something I'm really trying to learn and something I would encourage other people to learn is, or think about is like understanding your creative path is singular. Mm-hmm. So you might not have someone to carbon copy and follow, but that's the whole point. You can take pieces and parts, but your journey, what you put together, the sandwich that you make is gonna be different from anyone else's sandwich. Do you like that? What a delicious sandwich you have made, Katie. (laughs) Such a good sandwich. I'm gonna leave it there. That was so, so awesome. Katie Shulman. thank you so much. Oh my God, Um, how fun is this? So fun. I. There's going to be lots of links to Katie's stuff in the show notes, her website, where you can find her on Instagram. And she's going to be teaching a workshop at the school next week. I'm so uh, excited. Yeah. There'll be a link called All About Rope, Transforming Ooh. Line to Farms. Um, so all that will be linked in the show notes. Thank you, Katie. Amazing. Oh, thanks, Christine. This was so fun. Bye. Bye. If you want to dig deeper into some of the ideas we talked about here today, you have to come check out my new school for artists at amightypractice.com. We offer classes and coaching to give artists of all levels what they need to get started and stay motivated in their creative work. Find out more by going to amightypractice.com or stay in touch with what we're doing by signing up for our bi-weekly newsletter. Thanks, y'all.